few weeks while you've been away I've had to make decisions for myself and others and I want to go on making my own decisions hello Martin here thanks for tuning in to the first of three exclusive new interviews with the principal cast members of Secret Army this first interview sees Andy talking to Angela Richards, who played Monique Duchamp in all but one episode of the series. Monique, as you will remember, was Albert Foiré's long-suffering mistress, the resident chanteuse of the restaurant Candide, and ultimately the leader of Lifeline, as the war and the series drew to a nail-biting close. Angela trained at RADA. Some of her theatre roles have included Titania in A Midsummer Night's Dream at the Bristol Old Vic, Eve Harrington in Applause opposite Lauren Bacall, and Hallelujah Lil in the musical Happy End. She was nominated for an Olivier Award for Best Actress in a Musical for Side by Side by Sondheim, and took over from Elaine Page as Grizabella in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats. Her television roles included the title role of Aladdin in a BBC One Christmas Day pantomime in 1966, Ginevra Fanshawe in a 1970 adaptation of Charlotte Bronte's Villette, Cunegonde in the BBC Play of the Month Candide, foreshadowing Secret Army there, June in the children's drama series King of the Castle in 1977, Across the Lake with Anthony Hopkins in 1988, and guest roles in Minder and Hetty Wainthrop Investigates. Here's Andy talking to Angela about her memories of working on Secret Army. Thanks for joining me today. I'd like to start by asking you how you got the role of Monique. I think my agent did know Jerry Glacey, so I went to meet Jerry. We had lunch with Jerry and my agent. And I don't know if Jerry had seen me on stage, but um, I sort of got the job straight away. Yes, so it was a very good meeting and very enjoyable with Jerry. So you start off on that first series. How soon did you feel that it was going to be a success? Was it while you were rehearsing and recording, or was it when it went out? How soon? Uh, well... We sort of got the feeling it might go on because the viewing figures were very high and the producer, Jerry Glaster, looked very pleased whenever he came down to, onto the, the TV studio set. Right. And almost before the end of shooting, we were told there would probably be another set of series, episodes rather. Mm. So your character of Monique, um, so she, she helps Albert run the cafe, she's... She's um, his mistress as well. Um, was it an easy character to get a handle on? Did you feel you had enough there in the script to work from? Yes, yes, it was all there in the script. Yeah. And the more you worked with everyone as their characters evolved, so did mine. And you just sort of, most, mostly, if you like, you respond to whatever was happening in a scene. So don't forget, well, we all met and sat around a table to read through each episode. And we got a pretty good idea then what would be expected 
that you would be, you know, that you would have to portray as a character and then what would be physically involved, etc. So it, in a way, um, it was almost organically natural that you just walked in there and became Monique and you talked to Albert yeah. and Kessler and so forth. Yeah, okay. So I, I think the lion shares, share of your scenes was with Bernard Hepton playing Albert. You seem to have a great rapport. How was he to work with? He was lovely to work with. He He's very individual, is Bernard. Um, he sort of guided me to some extent and we worked our scenes together and I think he liked my work and and we had a very good shorthand. So to me, he was actually Albert when we were doing the scenes. Um, he liked me and we, we just did get on very well. He was an old hand at um, TV, you know, mm. if you like. He knew exactly where the camera was and, what, and how long to pause and what his expression might be. Um, but he was very generous with me. Why did you have to act as a collaborator? That German soldier didn't just happen to be there. You invited him in. My God, did you see the way those people stared at you? So we lose a few customers. We also lose our bespectacled spy. <laughs> we tip them off about an enemy airman in this restaurant. That makes us loyal. Collaborators. Well, call it what you like. I know what we're doing. I thought you did. And our neighbours? What do you want? Is it real help we prepare to give, or just a, a rude gesture that earns us a sly pat on the back? I remember him saying that it was um, once he got the moustache, he found Albert. He, as soon as that moustache was on, was there anything that you had? I know you obviously couldn't have facial hair, but was there anything that you had that could help you become Monique? Was it the costumes or the hair? Or Oh, very much the costumes. Yeah. And the hair. Yeah. And the hairstyle did change, I think, from series one to series two. Yeah. Um, and the costumes. Um, what makes you Monique? Um... I don't know. I think it's seriously there in the script. Yeah. I think the words that come, you know, that the writers had written that comes out of your mouth fits to make a picture. And when you have a picture, you see yourself as that picture. And that includes the costumes, if you like. The, the, the whole physical presentation becomes a whole, as it were. Yeah, that makes sense. So you worked with um, several um, actors on the first series who didn't go on to series two. So there was Jan Francis, Christopher Neem, Eileen Page. Any memories of working with those people? Oh yes, I like Jan very much, and we came, and we did keep in touch for a good while. Um, I was sorry she didn't continue as Lisa Colbert, but I think she wanted to move on to another series. I think Christopher was terrific, and he decided to pursue a, a career in the USS, where uh, the US, where he married, and and then he stayed there. Yeah. I, I thought he was a super character, yeah. quirky, yeah. sharp, unpredictable. I liked that. And uh, Eileen Page, well, she was, she was so warm and giving. A pleasure to be around, a lovely actress. Where's my husband? They're making a delivery, madame. He couldn't come. He asked me to. Madame McCurr will be calling this morning. She's bringing the priest with her. What time is it now? Just after half past seven. You do come to work early, Monique. I hope my husband appreciates you. I assure you he does, madame. 
I understand that the studio recording was always very time limited and high pressure. Did you ever suffer from nerves? No, it sounds a bit, it's a bit big-headed. No, <laughs> actually, the pressure could be quite exhilarating. You, um, you, you feel a kind, of, well, a sort of rush of energy. So nerves don't really come into it. Um, I kind of enjoyed it actually. Wow. So I'm, perhaps I'm a bit odd. <laughs> so moving into the second series, the series has been a success. You've got a second run of thirteen episodes, and the original cafe, which is a bit sort of a bit grubby and um, more just for locals, I guess, becomes mm -hmm. a posh restaurant, which Kessler yes. and Brandt visit. Yeah. And Monique becomes the resident chanteuse. How did you feel mm -hmm. about these developments? Well, I love that. I thought that the, the new restaurant was was very good idea on the writer's part. Uh, and in a way, I, I like the, de the decor. It, it seemed freer and wider, you know, when we walked around tables and things like that. Um, it felt very, very real, very like, I imagine, you know, the, the one in the Belgian Square where, we, you know, that we did, you know, do from outside. Um, I, I To be honest, I, I can't remember exactly how the singing came into it, but Jerry Glaster knew of my musical theatre work and it seemed that a good cafe uh, would, would probably have a pianist, you know, like Joe Allen's here in London. And um, it just seemed a natural step, perhaps, that money would be a good draw, you know, for the customers, especially the German customers, I suppose, which was, of course, a, a good cover for Albert. I mean, he could keep his eye on them, you know, walk around behind them at the tables and perhaps overhear a snatch of something that might turn out to be important for Lifeline. Um, glean information. Oh, and, it, and he was very good because he remained, didn't he, in their good books, you know, the ever congenial host who couldn't possibly be a threat to the Gestapo. No. <laughs> or could he? Yeah. <laughs> and we notice when she's not there that's what he said yeah i must sing tonight pascal if i don't you, you know... can't give him some excuse say she hasn't got back yet now listen at the moment he's not suspicious he's sitting out there with his belgian girlfriend enjoying a night out but he'll have a description of marie chardin exactly and as soon as he sees monique which could fit a thousand women now if he sees monique singing out there as usual he won't associate her with Marie Chardin, who was shot and taken to hospital. She's not strong enough. She couldn't do it. Can you do it? Yes. See, she can't stand up Pascal, by herself. I must. Just get me to the door. Natalie, yeah. uh, tell Max it'll be... I bet you've heard this one before. But, but ask him to give me a minute. All right, all right. So the specific songs that you wrote, which I think we get to know them pretty well by the end of series three because they're played in quite regularly, which is wonderful, and they almost become the soundtrack to the series. Um, any memories of writing those particular songs? I gave all that I had and more, and he 
I got on very well with Jerry, who really did listen to his cast. And I had written songs before, and I'd written with my friend Mike Reed. I'd written a little musical here and there. I would imagine that I was probably, you know, sitting at home. This is how it usually happens to me. A first line would come into my thoughts. It was always the first line, and I can remember feeling like um, how it must have been for my father and mother. Uh, my father at that time would have been in France with the Royal Leicestershire Regiment, and my mother would have been at home listening to songs on the radio, you know, like Vera Lynn and everything. So sometimes something like <clears throat> Memories Come Gently would have seemed so natural to compose, um, you know, like Memories Remembering. And I bet you've heard this one before. Well, that was just so the sort of girl in a bar who was jaded and sad and longs for something else, um, a return to some kind of normality after the war. Well, I think that is what I was trying to convey. And as for if this is the last time I see you, that just sprang out of the knowledge that the series was ending. Would any of us see each other again? And, and that would have been the same as it would have been for any wife, sister, mother, to watch their soldiers leaving for another country. Some of those women had never been abroad. I mean, my father had never been overseas before, so... Um, so it could have been, I guess, the last time, would this be the last time I see you? If this is the last time you hold me, then hold me as never before. We said when we started our story, the future we just Occasionally, Monique went out into the field doing various resistance operations for Lifeline. How did you, did you enjoy the location filming? Loved it. It was wonderful. And I met some really great people and the hospitality and that there was a kind of recognition, not about us personally, but about the memories they had in France and Belgium, those ordinary citizens. And when we, when they saw our um, actors in German uniforms, the, the, the reaction was amazing. We used the people there who just gave us this wonderful real atmosphere. It was quite something, actually. It was, I, was, I, was, I was quite moved. And you kind of got to be a bit of an action heroine. Did that appeal to you? <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I love being on the motorbike. Course, I like that enormously. Yes. I like that motorbike business. I, I, <laughs> Bit of a tomboy, I think. I just, yeah, that was yeah, great. Yeah. Yes. Being in danger, that was quite fun. And playing a heroine was quite yeah. fun. Uh, uh, and of course, there were always lots of chaps around to help out. I, I, I like that a lot. <laughs> well, this is as far as we go. It's where I first found you. Yes, I remember. Do I just wait? Yes. Go in, there'll be someone there for you. If not, he won't be long. Aren't you coming in with me? No. Guides never meet each other. One of the rules, security. I suppose this is goodbye then. Not au revoir? Yes, please go quickly. It's dangerous to wait. Thank you for yesterday. Sorry I had to have the plaster on.
Better luck next time. Yes, better luck next time. So you mentioned earlier about the costumes helping you to get into the character of Monique. Did you have any favourite outfits that you remember? I think there was one black evening dress. Uh, I love the shoulders, you see. I look very, I've got very slopey shoulders, so they're very flattering for me. Uh, it's one black dress. I think it must have been one of those when I was singing, an evening dress anyway. Nice one. Okay. Um, so into series two, you're, we've got some... Um, a new character in Stephen Yardley playing Max, <laughs> and and just because we haven't mentioned him yet, Ron Pember as Alan yeah. um, also came in. So, any memories of of those two? Yeah, of course. Um, Stephen was very tall, commanding, funny, not always serious. He always had a twinkle in his eye. Um, and Ron, well, Ron Pember, he was such an excellent actor extremely committed and professional. He, he, he wrote as well, you know, Ron, he, he wrote a musical. Oh God, I can't remember it. Um, but if you, if you do Google Ron Pember, he did, he wrote a musical. He's, we all loved Ron, we all loved him. In the second series, there's a point at which there's this sort of sniff of a relationship between Monique and Brandt, played by Michael Culver, which is something that Albert's character is, um, is sort of encouraging. Is this something you would have liked to have explored? Yes, very much so. I do, I do think it would have given the series the writers an, an edge. But then, I don't know, firstly, how far would it go? What on earth would be the outcome of such a relationship? Um, possibly, oh, I don't know, of Monique being um, perhaps, well, shaved, beaten or killed as, as a traitor and Brandt losing his liking for what he stood for, perhaps. He was, I don't know, you know, and the possibilities in that, I think, were numerous. I think that the writers might have balked at the idea of how they would work it out. And so perhaps they took an easier option. But I think it would have been very, very interesting. And I think that would have been, hmm. Yes. Are you suggesting that I should encourage him? <laughs> Be a very useful friend to have. Perhaps I should become his mistress. Oh, be a very useful contact. Very useful for lifeline. And I'm the woman you say you're going to marry. Monique. And now are you calmly suggesting that for the sake of lifeline I should have an affair? I merely pointed out that Brandt is a very powerful man and it would be useful to cultivate his friendship. Cultivate? You sound like a damn politician. If we are to continue to operate lifeline successfully, we must use all available means. All for the sake of lifeline. First collaboration, now me. I am not a collaborator. Oh. Well, let's hope you can convince everyone of that after the war. Now, the reason I asked that is because someone was musing about that on Twitter the other day. They were re-watching it and saying, oh, I love the chemistry between Monique and Brandt and I wish that had been explored. So, yeah. So, yeah, so did I. So did I. Wonderfully, in my opinion, and in many people's opinion, your role increases as the series continues and more and more episodes are centred around your character. And in the final series, with Bernard largely absent, you become the de facto lead. Did this, I mean, obviously this, this was a great opportunity, but did you feel any pressure? No, because you see, <laughs> I'm a bit bossy anyway. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I love the idea of leading our group. And, uh, and besides, Monique has had lots of experience, so she was ready. She could carry on as Albert would have wished. Anyway, as we all know, it was the women who were as much a, a part of the resistance as the men. So, um, no, again, it's like, I don't know, sometimes do you think the writers can read your character's um, future, your own future and the way you yourself wanted things to progress? Mm. Obviously, if Albert hadn't been put in prison, then none of this scenario would have happened. So um, they must have thought, oh, this might be very good if, you know, Angie takes over as the leader of Lifeline as Monique. Uh, interesting side to the story line. Monique! Nick! Oh, I've caught you. I've just seen Christophe. He saw Germans pulling a couple of dead bodies out of a house in the Rue de Belay. So? <laughs> they were dead Germans. <laughs> but it has to be Miller and the evaders. They must have realised it was a bogus line, killed the Bosch and Scarbard. Our evaders? Yeah. Well, they are now, of course, is anybody's guess. Well, there's no time to get anyone to help. You'll have to go. You must find them before the Germans do. Right. Miller must not be taken. If you have to, kill him. <sighs> No, I can't get the SOE in time. He's been right down the line. We can forget the French safe houses because they're behind Allied lines, but there are four in Belgium. And that's that's over 20 people. If he is not stopped, we're all finished. I can't. If you don't, I'll have to. And um, was it tiring because you were like in more scenes all the time? No. Um when you think about theatre work, that's tiring because you can't be sick, you can't be ill. Well, one is you, you shouldn't have a cold, you can't have indigestion, you can't have, you know, all of those things. You have to just get up there and do it and be almost on top form all the time. And that's a completely different stress factor. You do know when you're in the studio that if you're doing a scene, and you often did them two or three or four times anyway, that if anything went wrong, either on your part or the cameraman's part or the sound or whatever, that they'll stop. So there isn't, there isn't that, what's called, there's not a fear factor attached to that because at the back of your mind, you know that there's an out, you know, you've got an escape. Someone can just shout, stop, and, yeah. and we do. So something I, I really want to ask about is your wonderful on-screen relationship with with Natalie, the character of Monique and Natalie, um, very much a unit. And I I know because we've talked before that you got on well with Juliet. Can you tell me how it was working together on the series? Oh, it was lovely. You see, um, when Jan left, uh, and Juliet, remember at that time, was also slightly minor. You know, yeah. because it was. There was Jan and me, and and then and Juliet was almost, you know, not in the background, but the other girl. When Jan left, they started giving more to Juliet, I'm going to say. And we were doing more scenes together. And you know what is interesting? It's just come to my mind, actually. It's just that if you are characters who rely on each other to save each other's lives or save other people's lives. You have to have some kind of connective camaraderie, I think. And that's probably how it came around anyway. We used to laugh terribly. We were so naughty and we <laughs> break up all the time. And I mean, they did get quite, I mean, they got very cross with us actually. Because <laughs> the, <laughs> there would be times when you would say lines that, you know, like, good Lord, 
is it behind you know what i mean don't you yeah yeah and we yeah. were just melodramatic we yeah we can't say it we couldn't say the lines there was one particular i can't remember it there was one line we just couldn't say and we did take after take they got very very cross we were really naughty and uh, we should have been smacked or whatever well <laughs> no not that perhaps <laughs> uh, but um juliet and i yes we're very close we're in touch all the time we share the same politics likes and hates our sense of humor uh, and we rail at the world we live in. Yes, uh, as do I. Our in all its forms. I mean, yeah. well, I could go on and on, but it would sound so mushy. But no, friendship, no. friendship is one of the best things about the human spirit. And she and her partner, Toby, are my, my friends, my good friends. Anything. Nothing. Nothing. There's nobody watching the place, back or front. If the Gestapo have him, you know, don't you? It's only a matter of time before they have us all. Yes. Oh, God. Unique. Mm. You're going to have to take over Lifeline, you know. You're the only one who knows Albert's contacts. And you're the only one who knows how Lifeline runs. In Series 3, there were some new regulars. You had Terence Hardman, who played Reinhardt, and Paul Shelley, who had a one episode in Series 2, came back for a few episodes in Series 3 as Major Bradley. Hmm. Any memories of those those two? You know, this is awful, and it's going to sound <laughs> like a love-in. Terence <laughs> boldly went where no man had gone before, stepping into the shoes of Michael Culver as Brandt. Um, and a bloody fine job he made of it, too. And uh, Paul Shelley, it was so handsome, he was really kind and patient because I did resent his character coming in and running Lifeline. So sometimes I was, I'm sure, maddening to work with, but I really did like him. Yeah, because there's also almost the sense that has he been brought in because the girls can't cope on their own, sort of possibly? There's a, quite an area of um, misogyny about yes, because it's... It was, it was very much, if you like, an all-male all domain, apart from the naughty girls, that's Juliet and I, uh, and, and, and uh, later on, Madeline. It, it's all men. I mean, every series we'd be meeting f flyers and, and uh, soldiers and, uh, 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 and, uh, and our own men. Uh, it was, uh, yes, yes, it was sometimes... Sometimes I think I used to get cross with the scripts because I felt that we were being undermined, actually, as I think written as undermined. Maybe it was because they wanted to provoke these kinds of reactions, you know what I mean? So there is a, a frissance of kind of irritation and anger, not anger, but uh, on the set. Maybe, maybe. I'm Something not sure. to work with, yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. Um, anyway, uh, as I say, um, yeah, Paul Shelley was lovely. Um, we were lucky there. They were nice. Pascal, did he say anything to you before he died? No. Or to you, Major? Words intended for his wife? Anything at all? Nothing. Well, when the British arrive, at least we'll be able to tell them where his body is buried. And then I shall inform them how he came to be killed. Uselessly. For no reason. Just blame me. That's all you have to do. Oh, I do. I do blame you. And now I would like you to leave, Major Bradley. 
So you just mentioned Madeline, Kessler's mistress, who brings a human side to, to you know, oh, yeah. the terrible Gestapo man. But um, Secret Army was also careful about black and white and not being too black and white and having shades of grey in between things. Um, did you appreciate the fact that Secret Army wasn't just straightforward goodies and baddie, baddies every week? Yes, I, I did. That, that's true. You see... Um, I think all of us think we know best, but you, you can't moralise when it comes to whether someone should or shouldn't die. Every person, as it was clear with Kessler, Clifford Rose, wonderful Clifford Rose, what an actor, had that humanness about them, like his love and care for Madeline, and she was vulnerable. It was a beautiful, touching relationship, and I think the people watching saw that, and I mean, then they, they just couldn't really hate Kessler. It was... So I think it was, I think it was becoming kind of well, almost very well balanced. If, do you think so? I think it was. Yes, very much so. Yeah, I think it just felt that um, it was more complex than any other drama yes. I'd seen. Yes, yes. In terms, in terms of characterization. Yes, Ex yes, I agree. Yeah. Um, the scene that um, I asked a few people, what would you want to ask Angela? And they said, well, we want to ask you, ask her about that scene where her hair was almost cut off as a collaborator in the town square with that cage. And it was just so chilling mm. after following your character through the whole series. And to think this could be her end, well, not her end, but this shaming and this horrendous thing, despite all the bravery. How was it to film those scenes? Do you remember them? No, it was very odd. It was, it was strange because there were real people watching, not actors. I sort of, uh, I sort of felt a bit out of it. Like perhaps you might, you might have felt, no, those people to whom it happened, it, they might have felt out of it. I've not seen any filming of anything like that. So whether they would be sitting in their chairs squirming, whether they would have been resigned to their fate or something, uh, and then you just go into maybe a place beyond. I don't know. Maybe it's like the guillotine for all. Maybe you just come to some kind of terrible acceptance, but it, it wasn't. It was an uncomfortable feeling. Certainly was. Because there's, the, there's an actress or a supporting artist who goes first, who has, has her hair all cut off. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yes. What she, I mean, that was wonderful. I mean, think of that commitment. Um, yeah. That would, that's what I mean about those, when I go back to saying about the people, um, they entered into it into the most wholehearted way. Like they just understood and they knew. Now, either or these people had had the same thing happen to their parents or relatives or any loved one that lived through those times. They had a history of it. They understood it. Um, and so that girl was absolutely wonderfully willing to, to do it. I'm so, so impressed. It was, it was a wonderful thing to do. What did you feel about Stephen Chase arriving as the sort of like the knight in shining armour as Monique's love interest at the end, playing Captain Stephen Durnford? <laughs> That's not fair. Okay, I did resent a sort of happy ending, and I didn't think Monique 
should should have been saved, if you like, by a dashing captain rolling in on a tank. I mean, it might have been better had it been, I don't know, one of our lot or a liberator or even a German. That would have been, gosh, that would have been interesting. Anyway, um, but I will say this um, for Stefan. He was the best of men, wonderful sense of humour, and again, amazing patience with an actress who thought Secret Army writers had gone goofy. I mean, I don't think they would have stayed married long in England because I'm sure Moni could never have settled down to a life of domesticity. <laughs> no, not after she all She would probably that. have driven him to drink uh, or perhaps, perhaps they would have yes. gone abroad and he would have stayed in the army. Oh, she would never have made an army wife, barrack-like, the mess. Oh, God, the thought of it all. No, 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 no. It wouldn't have lasted. Definitely not. <laughs> yeah. I remember I interviewed Stefan um, years ago um, about the time on the show, and I think he was just mystified yes. coming into everything so late and not really understanding what was going on between all the characters. <laughs> he was just, I think he just seemed mystified throughout with how true. he felt about I it. I think but, it wasn't yeah. fair. And I think for any, yeah. any actor or actress who comes into any series late, um, it's much more harder for them. And, and to replace, you know, like, with, you know, Terence Hardiman and Brandt think that it's much harder because it takes time. Everyone takes time. Look how long uh, all of us were in it. By which time we're all, we all know our bit and we're all very confident of ourselves and perhaps a little bit blasé. But for someone who comes in into what is a kind of a family, if you like, um, I, I, that's, that's quite hard. It's quite hard. Yeah. Mm. Um, I haven't got a question about it, so I'm being naughty asking you about this, but I believe that when you, when Monique was getting married to Stephen in the church, mm. that that was a particular fit of giggles. Is that right? Oh, <laughs> oh yes. Well, Juliet was disgraceful because she, she just, I mean, everything was shaking with Juliet. Uh, you know, it was, no, it wasn't fair. I think it was just, it, it all got to us, you know, it's, it's a bit like a great big bow tying it up because it's the end of the war, everybody's happy, bells are chiming. It just felt so, it's, it was a little bit like a cop-out, if you like. It, we just felt, it just wasn't, it didn't fit. And, and, and it therefore, I would say as an actor, it was, it was hard to make it um, really, really, really truthful on one's part. So I think uh, I think you I think you get away with it. Only I mean, I'm an, I'm an impossible romantic, so <laughs> I actually kind of like it, even oh. though I feel it. I feel it kind of takes Monique's agency away, but the romantic side of me really likes that. Even oh. though I agree, I agree, it wouldn't have worked out in England. <laughs> oh, that's really nice. Oh, but that's nice because you're a viewer. I mean, yeah. if, if that is the effect that the writers and the, the, the producer wanted to, to um, achieve, then that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, I think it's because because Albert's never there for her. So someone who finally is oh. completely there for her, even though he's a bit of a whatever. <laughs> yeah. That's quite true, actually, Andy. You've made a very good point there. Yes. Mm. Monique, mm. you're not getting married for the sake of it, are you? You do love Stephen, don't you? Oh, don't worry about me. <laughs> Did you think that Albert would ever have asked you? He did once. 
There was a time, I suppose, you know, when I... And then I was in that uh, cage. Oh, Natalie, you know how long I've been here. He, he's not been to see me once, sent a message, anything. Do you hate him? No. I don't feel anything for him anymore. And if it didn't seem so cowardly, I'd never see him again, ever. But I will. Anyway, what are we talking about him for? I'm getting married tomorrow. <laughs> so you, we, we're getting towards the end of the series here. Um, was it hard to record the final scenes in the Condide and, and leave the series after all those episodes playing Monique? I think all actors will tell you the same thing. It, it's hard. You, you have relationships. You have friends in front of the camera, behind the camera. But the feelings can be intense in the final scene. But because you, you, because you know it's the final scene, there's also a strange kind of um, release. I can't think it's hard, it's hard to explain. But you, you, you kind of know you're going on to the next adventure, if you like, in your career. Some people only have one job for a lifetime and see the same people almost every day. I've had the greatest gift of having met and loved some extraordinary people over the course of this actor's life. And I'm, I'm truly very grateful. So there was, there was heartache and expectancy most Anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there a particular favourite episode or moment that you have? <clears throat> no, I don't think so. There were so many good moments, so I'll be here a long time listing them. But <laughs> I do remember some <laughs> funny things. One funny thing, which was, it just springs to mind, actually it's only just sprung to my mind, but in the cafe, very big tall windows, weren't there, with big long curtains. Yeah. And I think, you know, you have to I think it was I think it was a scene with Albert, just the two of us, quite a long scene, I think. And I was walking around talking to him and I don't know, laying tables, picking up knives and forks. And then one either it was a call, you know, siren, or we had to do the blackout. And I went to the windows, I remember this, and very tall windows, and I put one hand on one curtain on the right hand side and one hand on the curtain on the left hand side and I I pulled them together and the whole thing came down. I think I sat on the floor and laughed for about 15 minutes. Because it just was... <laughs> I mean, there are lots of funnies. I wish I could recall them all. And I dare say, if I actually watch some of the scenes, I think, oh, I remember when I did that and that was really, really funny. And yeah. oh, we had to do that again because, you know, oh dear. Yes, there were some fun. Yeah. I love it. We had yeah, yeah. sometimes such good laughs. Okay, so... In the 80s, so Secret Armies had a, had a very healthy repeat series in, I think, in the early 80s. And then towards the end of the 80s, a lower mm. low comes along, along deliberately parodying Secret Army. How did you feel about that? Desperately sad and angry. It hurt us. I think, although I can understand to some degree its continuing popularity, that it sent the wrong message about the work, the real work of those extraordinary men and women who gave up their lives to save others. I think that was a shame. Um, I remember sort of, this is just, um, I was in the BBC canteen and Jer Jer Jeremy, oh, it's gone. the writer with, with well, Jeremy Jamie Lloyd, Lloyd, yes. He was at our table because I'm not quite sure why he was there. He was with, I was with a friend of mine and we were in the canteen at the BBC. And I was doing Secret Army at the time. 
possibly talking about it. And who knows, that could have been the moment that Jeremy thought, oh, that's a rather good idea. I think I'll, I'll do that. I don't think it's, I don't, this is me, look, the rest of the world can think themselves. I don't think it is funny to make fun of something like that. Perhaps someone will say, oh, you can make fun of anything. Look at everything. I mean, look at um, oh, uh, Springtime for Hitler in you know the movie. Dun, dun. Mm. Uh, but uh, not this. I don't know why. It, it affected us all quite, quite harshly. And Jerry was very, very upset, I remember. I think we all were. But there mm. we are. Uh, uh, it's an act of work. I That's think, fine. Yeah. So... Yeah, I think it's it, for me. It's the tragedy that it's kind of blotted out Secret Army, yeah. and people don't remember it. And if you try to explain it, then they think they think yes, you're talking true, about a lower low, true. and that must be just so frustrating. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's almost an honour. I don't mean uh, it's a little bit backward thinking, really, but maybe it sort of protects Secret Army from being over mm. over repeated. Who knows? I don't know. I just yeah. don't know. So. Um, Back in 2006, we had the Secret Army Theatre Evenings where you sang some songs from the series and we had Secret Army fans together in, at the King's Head Theatre. Um, how was that to do? It was lovely, actually. Um, that was actually, to start with, I was, I was a little bit nervous about that, I must say. Uh, but it was very warm walking onto the stage and, and you know they're there because they want to be there for a specific reason, you know, not like, oh, they're coming to see some new show. But, but they've come there because they've got some memories and it has given them pleasure. And, uh, and it was lovely seeing some of them, the, the, the cast, you know, in the audience. That was, that was really nice, actually. And actually, it was, more for, I say it was more for them than me. I didn't feel, oh, it's Angela Richards stepping out and singing. I felt it was Angela Richards walking on stage and talking, being with people that, uh, that were a sort of like a group of lots of lots of lovely friends, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, it did have a lovely feel. We had some excellent writers on the series, people like N.J. Crisp, who, together with Jerry, co-created the Brothers and the Expert. And then there was uh, Robert Barr, who created the World War II series, Moonstrike. And Willis Hall, probably best remembered for Whistle Down the Wind and Billy Liar. But the chief scriptwriter was John Brayson. Um, and John was the script editor for the whole series. John was a very special man. Really special. Now, one of his episodes was called Ring of Roses, and it was um, based on an actual true event that happened in uh, occupied France during the war, um, an outbreak of bubonic plague. Well, in this episode, Monique and Dr. Kelderman's, played by uh, Valentine Dahl, the late Valentine Dahl, and a, a group of young airmen, we were quarantined in a safe house. And um, as the weeks went on, um, these poor young airmen died, you know. Bum, 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 bum. And, uh, I mean, <laughs> I know it's sad, but at the same time, I've got to tell you, we had to wear these uh, sort of hankies over our faces like this, you know. And we look like bandits, I have to say. And these hankies were sort of, you know, well, Dr. Kelvin was so many cologne on <laughs> something over, you know, stop. We know it wouldn't stop the plague if it ever actually got through. <laughs> anyway, um, I miraculously managed to survive. <laughs> <laughs> and so did Dr. Kelderman's, you know. Well, that was lovely because 
we were in next week's episode. <laughs> <laughs> but after we burned the bodies, uh, <laughs> thankfully it wasn't shown on the screen. I had to return to the Condi and explain my lengthy absence to the ultra-suspicious Mayor Hans-Dietrich Reinhardt, played by Terence Hardiman with a twinkle. Well, anyway, what could a girl do but sing? <laughs> How do you feel about looking back on Secret Army today if someone mentions it to you? Is it something you like to think about or is it difficult to go back or how does it feel? I think, you know, Secret Army was a good series. It was very well done because of Jerry Glaster at the helm because Jerry himself was an RAF pilot in the war. Uh, and then it, it fitted in, I think, very well at the time it was made, Secret Army. I don't watch it myself now because some of my colleagues are no longer with us and it just brings those memories which sometimes come not so gently really so no I don't watch it maybe one day I'll sit no perhaps I won't <laughs> okay, <come on. laughs> I just wondered Emma my last question was whether you'd ever been back to Brussels since the secret army days no, sadly, only via Google Maps and satellites. <laughs> I had to do that. I just, you can look at the square, you know, where it was filmed, where the cafe is on the corner. Yes, yeah. it was lovely. I enjoyed Brussels. They had that lovely shopping centre there, and I bought some, I bought some high-heeled shoes which are completely see-through, see-through heels, and a see-through fire. I, I thought they were wonderful. I never. I actually looked then for a few years after that, looking for similar shoes on the internet, but we couldn't find any. And we had some lovely trips as well. 
Uh, and oh, you know, when you talk about people, um, when we went to France, it was a village called Sanvie, I think. I think it was. We yeah, we stopped at Love, and then we went on to this village called Sanvie. And uh, the it was the, the village. Um, she was not. She was sort of like a mayor, mayoress, but you know, in a mayoress. She was like, and they put up this marquee for us, and then they laid trestle tables out, and they gave all of us, the cast, the crew, everybody, this wonderful lunch. It was, it was the first time I'd had tasted French food and I, I couldn't believe it. I thought they went round with, um, I know it was French beans or runner beans in big pans. And uh, uh, they, they, they were dishing out, you know, over the left shoulder to, onto your plate. And this, this lady, she put some on my plate and I took a spoonful and then I grabbed her arm and I made her put more onto my plate. It was, the food was wonderful. The hospitality was um, just sensational. And then after that, we were, we were in a, oh God, I can't remember, village, not village, but a little town. And there was a corner restaurant. I went in there and it was the first time I had a kind of a French stew. And I'll never forget thinking, I've never tasted the individual taste of every piece of vegetable, every piece of meat, before like this and it actually turned if you like my palate around and I really then began to appreciate good cooking I think that, that's a nice thing to bring back from a foreign country isn't it yeah yeah and yeah. um, one last question um how do you feel about the fact that there's so many people finding the series today that it's uh, kind of carries on living and people are still being excited about what's going on and will lifeline save the day and you know but all that complexity and all that wonderful characterization how does it feel to know that people are still finding it and still feeling that it there's a lot in it even though you know it's it's an old series now i think it's a lovely thing um i have to also point out though that in in a lot of cases people have themselves their own their own feelings and their own loves so it's like as you know there are many many older series of all sorts in this country and abroad and everywhere and people have their favorites and because it is a particular it particularly touches them individually their heart uh, and there will always be someone and people who will find something in Secret Army that is very important to them. And it's the same with other series too. So it's a very individual, personal, and I think admirable thing. So I'm, from, from that point of view, I'm so pleased that it's, it's given some people a lovely memory. Um, and I did, uh, I mean, I did have a, you sent me a, an email from a, a, a gentleman in Brazil in his childhood, uh, he when he was 14, he was watching Secret Army and uh, his mum was just a housewife, a mum, uh, and I believe she did want to be a singer and she was doing the usual thing in the kitchen and then she stopped and she put the, you know, her knife and fork down. She said, who's that? She said, who's that? And uh, her son said, oh, that's Monique singing in Secret Army. And she said, I must listen, I must listen. She went over and she something about the voice appealed to her, obviously, I'm not blowing my own trumpet. Um, and she said to him, every time she comes on and sings, 
I want to see and I want to hear. And every time I came on and sang, she, he said to his mum, Mum, Monique is on singing. And it gave her pleasure. Something to do with the fact that she adored music. She loved music. So everyone who watches Secret Army, they will have uh, the chaps will be looking at the bravery. Um, the women will be longing to perhaps have heroes like that. Uh, some people appreciate the music. Oh, and there was Ken Moore. I've forgotten. Ken Moore at the piano. Yeah. Oh, Ken. He was, we were so very um, compatible musically. He always, you know, he always listened to me, followed me, never, never ever got angry. And I never with him. I never played that when it was with Ken and we were playing music or practicing something or experimenting. Um, so there are all factors for all people, I think, to watch Secret Army. And I hope, I hope it continues to give them that kind of pleasure uh, because let's face it, you know, it's a pretty tough world, isn't it? And yes. um, getting more and more hard and angry and cruel. Uh, and I, goodness me, I could go on forever, but I won't. I'll stop now. I'm yeah. not going to preach. No. But it, there is something about the, the messages of Secret Army, about humanity and yes. inhumanity that really do hit today just as strongly, yes. if yes. not more so. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time today, Angela. It's wonderful, and I know there'll be lots of people who will really appreciate that you took your time to, to reflect upon, upon your time in the show. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Nice talking to you, Andy. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Angela wrote many of the songs she sang in Secret Army and collaborated with this very podcast's Andy Priestner on a series of Secret Army theatre evenings back in 2007 called An Evening at Le Candide. The songs she performed, including all those Secret Army favourites, Memories Come Gently, I Bet You've Heard This One Before, and If This Is The Last Time I See You, were released as a CD that is still available from the shop page of the Classic TV Press website, classictvpress.co.uk. The truth, wipe away the clouds, the gift of love is free. Memories come gently back to me. Love is for the very young. Let us raise our glass and say, let them live, let them love, let them have a future to be certain of. Time goes very swiftly for all the same those who've laughed at love have played a foolish game looking at you now at all the joy I see memories come gently back to me
nothing then could reach us, even though apart in these streets deserted now, I search in vain as I turn a corner in the pouring rain, floating through a doorway comes a man.